Good morning. It's good to be with you all today. Uh, before I uh, get into the sermon, I, I think it's appropriate to uh, d- just talk about and acknowledge the fact that the, uh, this round of the form internship has come to an end. Uh, we began back in October, back in the fall, and we capped things off yesterday with a, a bit of a retreat at the uh, downtown at the Dayton Arcade uh, with a retreat about spiritual disciplines. Trust me, it was way more fun than it sounds. Uh, but uh, it's been a great time of form. These uh, interns have learned about uh, spiritual formation. They have uh, learned um, just some great discipleship tools as well as forming uh, tight bonds and relationships with one another. And um, they've also had a significant role in the various ministries of Apex over the past four months. Uh, things like helping with uh, the Rasande learning experience this past fall. Uh, they've helped at the welcome desk. They've helped in children's and youth ministry. Uh, they've helped run the cameras for the live stream. They've helped with the online chat. They've served as good conversation partners with me as I've uh, formed sermons. And so um, if you were part of the internship this past four uh, months, would you, if you would stand uh, we just want to recognize, yeah, show some, them some encouragement, yeah. I heard some of the, uh, the past interns really give a good, uh, good pop for them there because they know that form is fun and form is great. And so I'd like to just say a quick blessing over them real quick, if I may. Lord, we thank you so much for what you've done in and through them, uh, these uh, interns as they have walked through form. Um, we thank you for... Um, just so much of how you have bonded us together over these past four months and we just look forward to continue to joining you in your work and we just pray your blessing and guidance over them uh, for what's next in Jesus name amen and so our next round of form will be in the summer from mid-May to mid-August but we're going to be uh, targeting and recruiting college-age students so if you know of any college-age students or are a college-age student we would uh, invite you to consider uh, keeping form on your radar but in the fall we'll open up form to everyone else once again. So um, our passage today will be again in John chapter 1 as we continue our series, our Life Encounter series through the Gospel of John. And next week we will be getting into John chapter 2 and from there we'll be taking much larger steps, (laughs) much larger steps going through the book uh, much much more quickly, um, probably going through about a chapter per week because we don't want to be in the Gospel of John until 2025. So, or you know, with it, we want to finish within this decade. So um, we've been in uh, chapter one for a number of weeks, kind of giving some introductory things, but next week we'll begin at a, a greater pace. So um, we're going to start in verse 19 of John chapter one. The word of the Lord reads this way. Now this was John's testimony. This is uh, John the Baptist. When the Jews of Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was, he did not fail to confess, but confess freely, I am not the Christ. They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the desert. Make straight the way for the Lord. Now some Pharisees who had been sent questioned him, 
Why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one who you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing him. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man, come, man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I would not have known him except that the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is the Son of God. Who are you? That is the question that the religious leaders posed to John the Baptist. And it's an important question. How do you answer that question? When someone asks you, who are you? Well, I think the standard when we're meeting somebody, we usually tell them our name, but what we are called only tells just only so much about us. It doesn't really get to the core of who we are. The British theologian and missionary Leslie Newbigin once wrote that in order to answer the question, who am I, I must first answer the question, what is my story? And in order to answer the question, what is my story, I must first answer the question, what is the whole story of which my story is a part? In other words, he says that identity is based on your life but your life situated in the story of the world and the story of reality. Now, if I may interrupt myself and give a shameless plug, in two weeks on February 12th at 9 a.m., I will be teaching a seven-week class called The Story of the Bible. Because I think for many of us, as we grow up learning about the Bible, we learn it in these individual episodes. We learn about David and Daniel and Noah and, and uh, Esther and Ruth, and, and we can think of the Bible as these episodes, but that can make the Bible feel a bit cluttered in our minds, kind of like that cluttered closet that most of us have in our house. You know that closet where we, you don't, when you don't have a place for anything, you just kind of shove it in this closet. But what we want to do with this class is to kind of offer you shelves for that closet to kind of help you organize and remember the story of the Bible as well as a way of processing it as one unified story. So whether you are new to the Bible or you are familiar with it but want a new way of thinking about it, um, we offer this class and that'll be both in person as well as online. So and you can sign up on the website. But again, it's about understanding the whole story, the whole story of reality as Newbigin says, that's a key in helping us to understand our own identity and who we are and where we are situated. But what is identity? There are a number of aspects to it, one of which is a sense of self. You see, many, we all 
we all wear many hats, right? We all find ourselves in different situations. Some of us are spouses and parents. We are coworkers, we are neighbors, we are friends, we are brothers and sisters, we are citizens, we are taxpayers, we are fans. So we, we find ourselves in a lot of roles, a lot of different roles, but your sense of self is that thing that remains the same, the core sense of who you are that remains the same and is stable regardless of what hat you're wearing and what situation that you're in. That's a sense of self. But not only is a sense of self important, but perhaps a sense of self-worth is also important. So it's one thing to have uh, knowledge of yourself. It's another thing to have uh, self-regard. Uh, that, that having, recognizing your own inherent value as a human being. But how does identity formation happen? Well, it happens in a number of ways depending on culture, but two primary ways uh, that they've happened is one, the traditional formation of culture. In other words, um, how identity formation happens in traditional cultures. Now, traditional cultures are both ancient cultures as well as non-Western cultures today. But in traditional cultures, your identity is based on your relationships and your roles and your orientation within your family and community. So it's based on how you live your life outward toward others. And so the, uh, the, the, high, the, the key virtues in traditional cultures are things like self-denial and self-sacrifice. That being putting your interests and your desires, setting those aside for the greater good of your family and your culture. And your sense of identity comes from these, you know, assumed duties, like, you know, you are your duties, and how good you are at these duties will determine whether you are considered an honorable person by others. So your identity is essentially bestowed upon you by those outside of you and connected to you. So if you meet someone from a traditional culture, they'll introduce themselves, but they're likely to say something about their, you know, family and extended tribe. Something like, I am Uncas son of Chingachgook, the last of the Mohicans. Something like that, that kind of thing. But the thing about this identity formation is that it's subconscious. It, you don't have to think about it, it just happens, it's just assumed. Same with the um, identity formation in modern culture. Because modern culture is different than traditional culture. Because the problem with traditional culture is that you know while we can affirm things like uh, self-denial and self-sacrifice the way that the Bible does. The problem with putting your identity in the hands of somebody else is that that's just, it's just unstable because people aren't always going to affirm you. You know, one minute they'll build you up, they'll puff up your ego, the, the next minute they'll be bursting your bubble, right? There, there's no stability there. But when it comes to modern culture, modern culture, unlike uh, traditional culture, which gets its identity from outside, modern culture looks within to get an identity. You look to yourself to get an identity. It's self-determination, and you've all heard the slogans. Be true to yourself. You do you. Listen to your heart. Follow your dreams. Live your truth. So we look for an identity from within. And 
Robert Bella and his uh, fellow co-authors of a book called The Habits of the Heart have identified this and have called this um, expressive individualism. Expressive individualism is the mode of operation of our culture. It essentially says you are your thoughts or you are your feelings and your desires. And in order to be an authentic person, you must outwardly express those feelings and desires. So unlike traditional culture where you are your duties, in modern culture, you are your feelings and desires. I mean, that's, it's the premise of every Disney movie. I mean, about 10 years ago, every little girl was singing the anthem of expressive individualism. Let it go. Don't hold it back anymore. Hold back what? Hold back what's inside of you. Even with what comes out is an ice monster. You got you to gotta let it go. Right? I don't care what they're going to say. It doesn't matter what anyone thinks. It only matters what I think. Right? That's expressive individualism. So it's the same. It's Frozen. It's Moana. It's uh, Little Mermaid. It's Turning Red. It's, it's follow, your, follow your heart. Be who you are. Kind of buck the traditional culture. And in some ways, in some regards, in those, within those stories, that's not a bad thing. Sometimes the traditions needed to be challenged. But within our culture, that we take that as kind of a blanket statement and as kind of an absolute that everyone needs to be who they are and to not listen to anybody else. Now, there's, um, so when it comes to traditional culture, the, again, the high virtues are self-denial and self-sacrifice, but in modern culture, the high virtues are self-assertion and self-reliance and self-determination. And there's a long history to this. We, we, we didn't simply wake up in the 21st century with this. Uh, there's a bit of a history. It's, there's been seeds planted uh, for hundreds of years by different thinkers. And we can start with uh, the philosopher Rene Descartes, who certainly did not find his identity outside of himself. In fact, he, he had this obsession with certainty to the point where he began to doubt anything outside of himself, like to doubt the existence. So he says, I think, therefore I am. I can only be certain of my own existence because I'm thinking, but everything else might be an illusion. But going further, is the thinker Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who basically said that everyone, every child is born free and is, is born uncorrupted, but the problem is that society corrupts them. And it is, it is the institutions of society that corrupt them, like the institutions of like family and the church. But then later, in the, uh, in the 19th century, we have the German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, who, writing a story, posed that God is dead, saying that there's no transcendent standard above us to tell us who we should live and, and whom we should base our life on. So what he calls the Ubermensch, that is the Superman, is the one who doesn't listen to anyone else, but determines what is right and wrong for himself and has a self-determined life. I am who I say that I am, the one who overcomes the opinions of everyone else. And then after that, in the early 20th century, we have Sigmund Freud, the father of modern psychoanalysis, who essentially reduces humanity to our sexuality and says that 
implying that sex isn't a function of what we do, but is actually what we are. So put all this history of thought in a blender and you have today expressive individualism. Now, in some regards, it's good to move away from those uh, oppressive things of traditional culture, um, things like, you know, uh, the fact that there, were, there was no climbing out of your current status of, uh, within society. In other words, if your father was a poor farmer, you were likely to be a poor far farmer. There, there just wasn't any, you know, upward climbing out of that. But as people kind of became aware of individual rights, and as the American experiment began to emerge, people would immigrate to this country in search of new opportunity where they could flourish. And that's a good thing. And to some degree, we would also affirm that, that to some degree, authenticity is good. However, I mean, I mean, after all, Jesus calls out hypocrisy. But however, this idea that in order to be an authentic person, you must express your feelings and your desires. The problem with that is not all of your feelings and desires are good. Isn't that right? Jeremiah 17 says, the heart is deceitful above all things. It is hopelessly sick, uncurable. Who can understand it? Jesus says, it is out of the overflow of the heart the mouth speaks, and, and with, because from out of the heart comes all sort of immorality and wickedness. Listening to your heart isn't always a good idea because of what's in it. So there's one problem. The other problem is the fact that, you know, we, we say we want to be individuals, we, and, and often that entails moving away from our family or our religious communities, but what we end up doing actually is running into the arms of a different community, a different support system. And so you say, I want to be my own person, but you just end up tethering yourself to a different community. And the thing about that is, is even that community that says, just be yourself, it too has its own versions of orthodoxy and heresy. They just draw the lines in different places. And there's an ex excommunication process within that as well. So really, by non-conforming, you're just conforming to something else. And the thing about it is just like with traditional culture, where if you put your identity in the hands of someone else, it's not a stable place because their opinion about you will change all the time because people are fickle. Well, guess what? You're fickle too. And your opinion about yourself is also going to change. You're not going to feel the same way about yourself from day to day. And your feelings and desires are constantly going to change. And in fact, sometimes your feelings and desires are contradictory. They can't work together. So which one of those do you choose to define you? So if it doesn't work to look outward to other people for a stable identity, and you cannot look to yourself for a stable identity, you can't look within, where then can we look? Well, if we can't look out and we can't look in, Perhaps we should look up. That's what John the Baptist does. And it's interesting, as the, as the religious leaders come and ask John the Baptist who he was, he doesn't begin by telling them who he is. He begins by telling them who he is not. The first thing he says to them, I am not the Messiah. 
Now, isn't that interesting? He doesn't begin by telling him who he is. He begins by telling who he is not. It seems that he knows, like, okay, they see I have a following. They see I'm baptizing people. Let's just address the elephant in the room. I know what you guys are thinking, and no, I'm not him. And that's a very important point, and that's an important, it's important for us to even consider in our own identity as well, because, of course, we know that we are not the Messiah. I mean, save for the handful of cult leaders out there, we all know we're not the Messiah, right? But we can extend what John is saying, and that John is saying, I am not the central figure of the story. I am not the center of the universe. I am not the center of reality. And while at a conscience level, I think we know that about ourselves, but I wonder if at a subconscious level and at a functional level, do we know that about ourselves? Because let's face it, from day to day, what do you spend most of your time thinking about? Whether you love yourself or whether you hate yourself, you is often the center of your life. It's true, it's human nature. And when it comes to our relationships, we, we primarily think of our relationships in terms of the role that people have in our life rather than the role we have in their life. Isn't that true? I know for me, I learned this the first time my wife was pregnant. I thought about you know, this child and how she would her existence would affect my life. But one night on a dark drive home, uh, when I do all my best thinking, right, it occurred to me like, wait a minute, this child has her own life and her own story. And I'm not gonna be the center of that story. I'm at best the supporting actor, right? But we often think of the role that other people have in our life. But John here, John is saying, I'm not the lead actor, I'm the supporting one. My whole life is dependent on the one who I'm pointing to. Without Messiah, there is no John. His identity was tethered to a reality greater than himself. And do you know that for yourself? Your identity is contingent, it is dependent not on yourself, but on something outside of yourself. And that which is the center of all reality. It's like Newbigin said, we gotta know the whole story. And, and knowing the whole story, we gotta know who's at the center of that story. It's about knowing who Jesus is. And so for John, it seems that at some point he had a vague notion of Messiah, but one day Messiah stood in the flesh right before him and the one who sent John enabled him to recognize him. This is the one. Can you imagine that? Living your entire life knowing that you live for somebody else and then suddenly they are standing right there in front of you asking to be baptized. And John, 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 the other gospels we see, John says, are you kidding me? I need to be baptized by you. But there he was in the flesh. And in the following days, John would be saying, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now this is interesting here to think about. What did John mean by this? Because for us today, we have this vantage point of, you know, knowing that Jesus is the Passover lamb and that Jesus is, you know, the slaughtered lamb in Revelation. Did John have any clue of this? 
Did John have any idea of uh, atonement and what the cross would entail? I'm not sure that he did. Because one time in prison, he sends his disciples asking Jesus, are you the one to come or should we be expecting somebody else? Because apparently Jesus wasn't living up to John's expectations. It doesn't seem like anyone had any notion of the cross. What did John mean when he said, behold the Lamb of God who takes the sin of the world? Honestly, I don't really know. But perhaps he was speaking more, he was speaking better than even he knew. But what's interesting about this section of John is that it talks about the identity of John the Baptist, but it even more so talks about the identity of Jesus. Like John gives all these titles and names of Jesus, the the King of Israel, the Messiah, the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Lamb of God who takes the sin of the world, God's chosen one. Over and over, there's this thick description of Jesus here in John chapter 1. We have to know the identity of Jesus in order to know our true identity. And we need to know what Jesus says of us. Because later in John, later in John 1, we see that this man named Simon has a life encounter with Jesus. And Jesus says, from now on, we're going to call you the rock. And then later, a man named Nathaniel has a life encounter with Jesus. And Jesus approaches Nathaniel saying, behold, a true Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Nathaniel says, huh, well, I don't know that we've we've met before. How do you know me? And Jesus said, I saw you under the fig tree. Now, this is interesting because John really doesn't tell us anything about the significance of the fig tree. I mean, it's one way for us to know that this is an eyewitness account and not just random fiction because no good fiction writer in those days would write something like this without explaining it to us. It's just kind of left hanging But it was significant to Nathaniel, who said, he hears this thing about the fig tree, and he says, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And through that, Nathaniel could know his own identity as the true Israelite in who there was no deceit, because the one who said that of him has an objective view of reality, because he's the one who created it. In him and through him, all things were made. What Jesus says is true. We can't rely on what we say about ourselves because again, the heart is deceitful. We can be self-deceived, but we can trust in what Jesus says. He has the objective view of reality. He created it. But as we know who Jesus is, there are we can by implication understand better who we are. Again, with all of these titles, we can can just think it through. And so what I wanna do now is a bit of an exercise of, um, that may be familiar to you. If you remember when Family Ministry did uh, the Adventures in the Bible, those presentations, they walked us through a process of picture, mirror, and window. This comes from a theologian named Warren Wearsby, who talked of the, uh, the parables. And he said, in each parable, there is a picture of God, a mirror to ourselves, and a window to the world. And so in the same way, we can take passages of scripture and consider what is the picture of God? What does this tell us of who God is and what he has done? And then with the mirror, we can ask, Okay, so according to this passage, who am I in light of who God is and what he has done? 
And finally, with the window to the world, we can consider, okay, in light of who I am, how do I now get to live out in the world? Does that make sense? That's one thing we'll be doing in the, uh, the story of the Bible class. But we can take any of uh, the phrases in here that talk about Jesus and walk through this process. What does this tell us about Jesus? So what does that mean for who I am? Now how do I get to live that out? So let's take one phrase. I love this phrase that John the Baptist says, the one who is coming of whose um, straps of whose sandals I am unworthy to untie. Isn't that an amazing statement? One who is coming, whose strap, the straps of whose sandals I am unworthy to untie. Now, we probably have to do, I mean, a lot of you know what this is about, but we need to do some cultural work here because in our culture, we don't look at some person we think is great and say, I would never untie their shoes. I mean, forget it. I, I couldn't even approach them to untie their shoes. So what is, this, what is this untying sandal straps about? Well, in those days, you know, everyone walking around in sandals on, on dirt and, and dusty roads where, you know, um, livestock would come and, you know, leave evidence of their presence every now and then. And so it, people be walking through the, this, these dirt roads in these sandals. And at the end of the day, I mean, your feet are just gross. I mean, I experienced this my, my first mission trip 20 years ago with Apex to northern Mexico. I was a bit of a free spirit back then, so I was wearing flip-flops as, uh, as we walked through these, the dirt roads of these villages. Uh, but at the end of the day, we'd get back to our compound, and I'm like, oh my goodness, it looks like I've been walking on Oreos. I mean, like, th they were just like, like dark and dirty, so you'd have to take care of your feet at night. And, but that illuminated this reality of the first century, that feet were gross. And unlike today, feet aren't gross today, right? No. Um, but in those days, there, there's, we have writings from those days that say a rabbi could command or could demand anything of his disciples that a master could demand of his slave with the exception of untying his sandal straps. A rabbi could command anything of his disciple that a master could de demand of his slave with the exception of untying his sandal straps. That would be going too far. That was too degrading of an idea because again, feet are gross. Now, so John, John the Baptist here says, I am unworthy to do the most menial task for the one to come. I'm not even worthy of being of doing a, the job of the lowest slave. Okay, so let's think this out. Let's continue to think. In the Gospels, later in the Gospels, Jesus tells us that aside from himself, among us mortals, among those who are born of woman, John the Baptist was the greatest. John the Baptist was the greatest of all of us. And if John is the greatest of all of us and he is unworthy to do this menial task of untying sandal straps for Jesus, what does that mean for us? If John is unworthy, we are super unworthy. <laughs> and so you're probably hearing that and say, gee, thanks, Chad, you've really affirmed my identity today. I'm gonna walk around unworthy. But there's more. Let's consider later in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 13. It's the Passover, and John doesn't bother 
much about um, the, the Last Supper as the other Gospels too. He assumes that, you know, you're Christians, you know about it, you practice it all the time. You know the story of the Last Supper. John focuses on this time where Jesus removes his outer clothes and wraps a towel around himself and washes the feet of his disciples. Now, we can hear about that and go, okay, cool, what, what a nice gesture. No, culturally, <laughs> again, if it were scandalous for a student to untie the sandal straps for their rabbi, for a rabbi to wash the feet of his disciples was unthinkable. A shock, an unimaginable shock, which is probably why Peter <laughs> initially is like, you aren't washing my feet. No way. This is not done. But Jesus says, Peter, unless I wash you, you have no part in me. You have no inheritance with me. So Peter, the, uh, <laughs> the impulsive overcompensator that he was, says, oh, okay, fine, then wash my head and my hands and all of me. But Jesus says, no, you're already clean. The one who's had a bath is already clean. You just got to take care of the the, the daily grime that happens as you walk in this world. Peter had no idea that morning that later Jesus would be washing his feet. And as Jesus is washing his feet, Peter had no idea the lengths that Jesus would go within 24 hours to serve him. Because here, in this moment, as Jesus washes the feet of his disciples, he is taking the posture of the lowest slave. That was the lowest slave's job, to wash the feet of any guest coming into a house. Jesus takes the posture of a slave, pointing to the fact that he would soon be dying the death of a slave. That's what crucifixion was. Roman citizens were exempt from it, but crucifixion was reserved for rebels against the empire and slaves. Jesus took the posture of a slave, pointing to the fact that he would be dying the death of a slave in order to liberate those who are enslaved to sin. You think a rabbi washing his students' feet is a shock? the God of the universe became flesh and took the posture of a slave. Can we ever get over that? So, let's think about that. What is the picture of Jesus that we get from this passage? The picture of Jesus, uh, you know, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.15 that Christ died for all so that those who live would no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised again. He died that they would no longer live for themselves, no longer live their, their self-centered life, their self-determining lives, no longer live for their self-determined identities, but to give them a new one. So what is the picture we get of Jesus in this passage? Well, one, when John the Baptist says, the one is coming whose sandal straps I am unworthy to untie, that is a statement that is less about John the Baptist and more about Jesus. And what does that communicate about Jesus? It's about his greatness. John is saying, by comparison, 
He is great. But with all that I talked about, after that, with the washing of the feet, what do we see of Jesus? His selflessness. Even though he is the center of all reality, he was selfless. That, and though he was, by very nature, God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a slave, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So Jesus is both great and selfless. Now, this is a combination we don't often see in our world. Isn't that true? Those who are great are usually not selfless, and those who are selfless usually are not great. In Jesus, we have both. So what does it mean for us that Jesus is both great and selfless? For we can consider that we are loved. With what Jesus does for his disciples, I mean, he does it for us as well. The, the washing that we receive from, from what he did on the cross, we see we are loved. We are loved, we are washed. And even though John the Baptist was right, he really was unworthy of Jesus. And in, in of ourselves, we too are unworthy. Jesus makes us worthy. That God made him who knew no sin to become sin so that we could become the righteousness of God in Christ not in of ourselves but in Christ we are worthy isn't that right we are baptized in an ocean of grace and we are now walking out dripping wet And so how now do we get to live out in the world as ones whose identity is loved, washed, and worthy in Christ? How do we now live in the world? We live with a towel wrapped around our waist, looking for feet to wash. Now, in our culture, obviously, to literally wash feet doesn't really mean anything to anybody, but what we are looking for is to put the interest of others above our own interest. not for the sake of our greatness or for the sake of spotlighting our selflessness. It's about pointing to Jesus. It's taking up the job of John the Baptist. John the Baptist's job, John the Baptist's whole identity is wrapped up in pointing to Messiah, not pointing to himself, pointing to the Messiah. So here's this. And um, Matt and Rebecca, if you want to come up, the band wants to come up, you guys can go ahead and make your way to the stage now. Let's consider this. You are loved in Christ and you have been made worthy in Christ. So now you get to point to Christ. Should I say that again? You are loved by Christ and are made worthy in Christ and now you get to point to Christ. Turn to your neighbor. <laughs> Thanks, Mike. Turn to your neighbor, and if you're online, type it in the chat. You are loved by Christ. 
you are made worthy in Christ. And guess what? You get to point to Christ. How's that for an identity? Because here's the thing. We can't, we, we can't look outward to other people to get an identity. There's no stability there. We can't look within ourselves for an identity because there's no stability there as well. What we need is an identity of someone who will love us and whose love will never fail, whose love will never change, whose love endures forever, one who has an objective view of reality, one who really knows us and sees us inside and out, sees the dirt on our feet, sees us under the fig tree, that is a stable identity. 